The Explore Oregon podcast is brought to you by the Statesman Journal, newspaper of Salem in the state capital since 1851. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. In this edition, we're talking to a literal fishing poet about the joy of catching trout at one of Oregon's most beautiful, interesting, and sometimes misunderstood places. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, David, so in this edition, we are going to talk about fishing at Detroit Lake. Located about an hour east of Salem, this 11-mile reservoir is known for many things. Water skiing, camping, and most importantly, fishing. This year, I've really taken advantage of how great a place it is to catch trout and kokanee almost any time of the year. In this episode, we're talking to Henry Hughes, an avid fisherman and professor at Western Oregon University. We dive into the reasons Detroit Lake is such a great place to go fishing year-round and actually how to pull it off. We'll talk about the best lures, the best locations, and the best places to stay. We also dive into kind of the really unique experience of fishing the reservoir when it drops to very low water levels. Yeah, I think most people think about Detroit Lake in its summertime form, that sparkling blue lake nestled among the mountains. But in winter, and this year in particular, the reservoir gets really low, revealing these mud flats and ancient stumps, and it looks a little bit like it was hit by an atomic bomb. But at the same time, if you can get a boat on the water, the fishing is out of this world. All right, well, to talk about all things fishing at Detroit Lake, I'm joined today by Henry Hughes. He is a professor of writing and literature at Western Oregon University and the author of the book Backseat with Fish. He's an Oregon Book Award winner and an avid angler who fishes just about everything across Oregon, including Detroit Lake. Henry, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Zach. It's great to be here. So one of my favorite things about you is that you are literally a fishing poet. A lot of people like to claim that title, <laughs> you know, in kind of a, a folksy way, but you are actually a published poet about fishing, author of a wonderful book about your lifetime in fishing. So I guess I wanted to start by asking you, what is it about fishing that animates your imagination so much? Why fishing as opposed to, uh, I don't know, football or basketball or something? I think different sports or different activities can turn on people in different ways. Since I was a child, I grew up on Long Island, New York, near the water, was always fascinated by fish the mystery, what you couldn't see. You might see a fish splash on the surface, but I was just driven to know uh, how they lived under the water, and I just wanted to catch them. I, I was surrounded by a fishing culture on the East Coast, but then whenever I traveled and lived in different places in the United States, even in Asia, I found fellow anglers and a kind of shared obsession with the mystery of creatures that live in the shadows of water. And so I just have kind of connected that to things like literature and um, natural history and travel. So it's been, a, it's been a great activity for me. And it's interesting, you know, when I read uh, your book the first time, it seemed like every, you wouldn't necessarily go places with the idea of fishing, but you found ways to fish no matter where you were. Even in places that weren't super obvious, you could always find a place, you know, to get your line in the water. 
does that just come naturally? Do you just, when you get to a place, do you naturally seek out waterways <laughs> where fish might reside? Yes, I do. And I think people are always drawn to water. You know, you kind of follow the creek down to the bay, down to the ocean. Uh, and I always would kind of just poke around and look, you know, well, that looks like a nice lake or that looks like a stream. Uh, you know, try to get a license uh, <laughs> and uh, certainly ask the locals. You get great conversations going. You actually learn about a place the people, the food, the customs through fishing. Fishing becomes a kind of a common language. So when I lived in China and Japan, it was really one of the best ways to get to know the people, learn some of the language, was to show them I was interested in fishing. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite quotes from Hemingway, of all people, was that he talked about how boring it was to talk to people about golf. Because <laughs> golf, when you talk about golf, it's all about the person. They're basically just telling you a boring story about yourself. But when you talk about fishing, now that's something everybody's interested in because it can apply to you. You know, where did you catch them? At what depth? And stuff like that. So I do love the language and the conversation in fishing because it's more inclusive than other things. It's extensive, no doubt about it. And it involves, you know, biology, it involves hydrology, it involves, you know, engineering, technology, as well as just some very basic ideas of uh, community too. Mm -hmm. And talking to people about where the fish are and going to a local shop yeah. and having a cup of coffee and buying a couple lures. Uh, I think, it, yeah, you're right. It encompasses so much. Yeah. Well, one of the areas that you know, is big for fishing around here is obviously Detroit Lake. It's one of the more popular fisheries in Oregon, but there's more to it, I think, than, than meets the eye. You know, most people go there in summer, but you fish there year round. Um, so let's jump into Detroit Lake. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of some un unique experiences there about fishing at really low water. But I wanted to start off generally and kind of from a, a wide angle view, talk about what we enjoy most about Detroit. So for me, you know, I'm kind of a, I, I fish when, when I can, but it's, you know, not something I do as often as you or anything. But Detroit is nice because it's a place where you can typically catch fish you know, in a state where you might go months on the river and land like one steelhead, <laughs> one salmon. Detroit is nice because you can go there and almost get your confidence back. Typically, you know, yes. land some, you know, a handful of fish, yes. get them in, on the line, you know, bring them home and cook them. And that can be hard in a lot of places. But for you, what do you enjoy most about Detroit? Well, you, you, you know, you mentioned something that's very important. There's all kinds of fishing. And I certainly admire and I still enjoy putting in my long hours uh, steelhead fishing or salmon fishing. And it can be, you know, but you might fish for eight hours and get one or two strikes and maybe a fish. It's true. And I think that has its place, you know. Uh -huh. However, <laughs> it's nice to go out on a beautiful lake and troll around and catch a dozen fish. And we'll catch 20 or 30 fish, select your limit, take five nice rainbows home, and you're right. It's, it's that kind of fishery designed essentially for catching mm -hmm. and keeping. You know, those fish are stocked primarily and the rainbows certainly, and they're great for taking home and putting in the smoker or frying in a pan. And so it kind of connects you to some of the basic elements of fishing that are, that are truly about going out and maybe catching supper as opposed to more of a, you know, kind of a super high tech or very challenging sport. Mm -hmm. I, I really love that about Detroit. It's very basic in that way. Mm -hmm. That's great. 
So let's talk about the the type of fish that you're going to find out at Detroit. Now, the reservoir gets stocked with something like 100,000 fish I've read every year. But what types of fish are you targeting mainly? Yes, it's heavily stocked with rainbow trout. And that's certainly the main quarry there. Um, And those fish are put in throughout the year. I think they do a fall stocking, for example. And so if you catch fish, you know, right after they've stocked, they're often maybe a little bit smaller. However, they are stocking, stocking larger fish. And you're going to get a rainbow trout, let's say, around 10 to 14 inches. And again, it's a, it's a beautiful fish. I, f- I find that they fight well. If you get fish that have lived in the lake for a few months, they tend to be bigger. Their flesh is a little bit more pink. Um, you know, they're great, again, for the table. However, they're also kokanee in that lake. And kokanee are really extraordinary fish. I know we can talk more about them in detail, but... They have been uh, introduced to to many lakes in Oregon. Um, they do exist. They did exist wild in the Northwest, a kind of vestige of the great sockeye salmon. Uh, but they are in Detroit, and they can get nice. They can be, you know, fifteen inches. And you're talking about a beautiful fish, well over a pound. And uh, they're typically a little harder to catch. Mm-hmm. But uh, those are two main fish in Detroit Lake. There are a few other species. There are bullhead catfish, for example. Great for kids in the summer. Just cast out a worm on the bottom. Once in a while, I catch a sunfish, but really, it's not a, a true uh, bass, uh, warm water lake. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I wanted to talk a little bit more about kokanee because when I talk to anglers who have fished Detroit for a long time, a lot of them are pretty excited about kokanee. Uh, it sounds like kokanee has improved. They've come mm. up with better ways of stocking them recently. So give us just a little bit of a primer. So what exactly are kokanee and you know why are they such a desirable fish? Right. And a kokanee is, is a sockeye salmon that's landlocked. And again, probably in the last ice age, 15,000 years ago, when the ice melted, it left these pockets of fish. And they exist all through the Northwest. Um, they've been introduced to other parts of the United States. But um, again, the average kokanee, about 12, 13 inches, maybe about a pound, but they can get up to nine pounds. I think that's the world record mm-hmm. for, in Wallala. So yep. Oregon holds the world record. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Detroit has some, Green Peter has a great population of kokanee. Odell is a famous kokanee lake. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Wallala out in the east, Crescent, Subtle Lake, Lake Billy Chinook. And I guess why they are so sought after is, well, a couple of things. One is they're delicious. Yeah. You're talking about like the veal of salmon. It's this little salmon. And I really, I enjoy smoking them, putting them on the grill. They have those wonderful oils, uh, gorgeous, um, again, uh, pink flesh, orangey pink flesh. Mm-hmm. Also, because of their abundance, because of their success in these lakes, often the bag limits are larger. Now at Detroit, it's not. It's still five fish, uh, you know, trout and kokanee. But at, at Green Peter, it's 25 kokanee. At Odell, it's 25. So people love to talk about catching fish, right? So you put in your days, you know, looking for steelhead and you might have one fish, but you can go to, to Odell or Green Peter and come home with 25 kokanee. Uh, and even at Detroit, part of your five fish limit, you might have a couple big kokanee in that limit. And so it's it's very satisfying to anglers who enjoy catching and eating fish. Yeah, I remember one of your, uh, <laughs> and we've used this in other podcasts, but I remember you telling me about the cokeheads out there. Oh, that they That they are... <laughs> They're so beloved, and I get it. You know, we caught some, I think, the first time we went out there, and I went back and, you know, filleted them up, and they just 
were different. Mm. It was like a mini salmon, and mm-hmm. they and they tasted, you know, a little bit better than trout. Right. And uh, so I I understand the appeal, but that that always cracked me up. You know, <laughs> there. What does the average cokehead look like? Can can you can you pick them out in a crowd? He's smiling because he has twenty five fish in his cooler. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is kind of funny. Uh, they're typically people that have these, you know, nice boats, an 18-foot yeah. uh, boat with a heated cabin, <laughs> and you've got, you know, four electric downriggers going. And so it is. It's more of a leisure kind of fishing, and mm-hmm. you cruise around the lake trolling, um, and you catch a lot, of, a lot of action. So if you've got four people on a good day of kokanee fishing, maybe at its peak in, in June – you know, really, you could, you know, be catching over 100 fish, maybe releasing some smaller ones. But the action is just constant. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, because they are successful in these impoundments, the bag limits are high. But uh, it, it's, a, it's a satisfying fishing, you know. And you don't have to be in great shape. You can sit down and have a cup of coffee <laughs> and watch those downrigger rods tip and get up and reel in your fish. All right, so fishing from a boat is definitely the best way to fish at Detroit. And we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, the way you go about that in just a second. But I wanted to to talk a little bit about access because without a boat, you know, I know people like fishing off Detroit Dam. Uh, yes. The viewpoint there, that's a pretty popular one, just putting in the, the lure from up there. There's also a fantastic 200-foot-long fishing dock at Hoover Campground yes. that goes out over the, the water. It's great for kids to just put a line in the water. Right. Any other places that uh, you've noticed for non-boat fishing? Um, and if you're fishing from the banks, I mean, what do you recommend sure. if you're going from the, the banks? Really, you know, if you can get to the lake, you can catch fish. There, uh, I've proven this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've tried just randomly to, to approach the lake and, and cast – you know, essentially still fishing with a little bit of weight, uh, a power bait, a worm, corn. Some people like bobber. But there are fish around the entire lake. Now, when it gets warm, you mentioned um, the basically the, the mouth or the, the, the opening there where the Santiam comes in mm-hmm. and feeds, you know, cold water into the lake. So that's a great spot. That fishing pier, as long as the water is high enough. Now, sometimes that pier is out of the water. Mm-hmm. You want to maybe check with your local ranger station or call the folks at Detroit, the town there. They're very helpful, the local stores. Because if that pier is in the water, that's a great place. Okay, gotcha. Any of that, yeah, Santiam Flats. You mentioned, you know, the campgrounds at Hoover and, and Cove Creek. Mm-hmm. So that's a great place. The same thing with the uh, the Brighton Bush, where the Brighton Bush flows in around the town of Detroit. That cold water stimulates some good summer fishing. So those are great places if you can find access. Now, we'll talk about the winter, but really, yeah, if you don't mind walking down through the mud, mm-hmm. just finding a rocky spot because it's easier to stand and work with your gear. But I've caught fish almost every every location on that lake. Yeah, very cool. Um, all right, so you so say that you haven't fished at Detroit Lake before, but you've got a boat, or you're planning to rent one from one of the marinas. Right. What's your typical setup as far as baits and lures are concerned? How you how do you usually go about uh, catching the kokanee and the the rainbow trout? Sure. I mentioned still fishing, and some people like that. They anchor up at a point, uh, a drop off, and fish the bottom. And that's fine. But really, I have found the most effective way is trolling. There's something irresistible about that parallel presentation. And it's true of, of uh, trout fishing, you know, really throughout the country. So at Detroit, I would launch, you know, at one of the state parks. Mongol has a great ramp. And take your boat out around the island. Piety Knoll is a great spot. 
and you want to troll slowly. So if you have, uh, you know, a way of measuring speed, either through GPS, you know, um, or other methods, you, between like 0.5 and 2 miles per hour is a great trolling speed. If you don't have a trolling engine, you could uh, slow down your main engine by putting out sea anchors and just buckets with holes in them mm-hmm. tethered to the stern of your boat. Get that boat going slow. But many people now have trolling motors. And then you're really just putting out – some people, the traditional trout fishing uh, trolling rig was the old you know, cowbells and you know, Ford fenders. It's some bling. They're interested. They see something flashing in the water. They come over to it. Mm-hmm. I have found actually those things are great, but they're a little uh, snaggy or, you know, they can be a little bit tricky if you have kids and stuff. One flasher works well. You can buy a Dodge or a flasher. Essentially, you've got, you know, something looks like a shaving mirror mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's reflecting light, attracting fish, and then a leader. It doesn't have to be very long. It could be three feet. It could be uh, 18 inches to a kind of lure. Uh, hoochies are very popular, wedding rings. And that that zones them in. That focuses them in a little bit more. And then a bait that has you know, just put a little bit of corn, a little bit of worm on that terminal lure, and the trout just strike that. You'll have good success. One of the things that you did that uh, I was unaware of. You've you've got your corn, and then you put it in uh, almost a kind of a scent. That's so right. so tell me about that. Sure. And there are many scents on the market, but you can just use tuna oil or fish oil. And I I get. You know, niblets, uh, corn, I kind of strain it, dry them out a little bit, and then introduce a strong fish oil. Mm-hmm. And it's irresistible. And kokanee anglers have known this for a while, and they are different ingredients. Some people like garlic or anise. I find like a straight tuna oil is very effective. You know, you open a can of tuna, boo, the whole kitchen, right? The house smells of tuna. It's a strong, very strong uh, fragrance. I'm using the word fragrance because I'm thinking like a sure. fish. As we have to think like a fish. Now, for coconut, it's a little bit different at Detroit. Um, in the spring or in the fall, when the water is cool, you can get them up top with just using a one-ounce weight as I would for trout. But often they're deeper. And so you'll, you'll want to use a downrigger or a diver. And look at your depth recorder if you have them. You'll see schools of fish. But, you know, I start at like 40 feet. It's just kind of a place I start if I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And get that – it's the same kind of rig except typically I just use corn for coconut. And you're trolling again slow, let's say an average of, you know, 1.5 miles per hour. And the co- you, once you find the depth that the coconut are at, you'll have success because they are going to be feeding on zooplankton at a very specific depth. And when you, it could be 90 feet at the height of summer. It could be 20 feet. But you have to find where the coconut are. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, I know that anglers hate to give away their favorite uh, fishing spots, and you've mentioned that you know you can you can fish just about anywhere around Detroit, and there, there's probably going to be fish there. But do you have good general locations? I mean, it's an 11 mile long reservoir. If you see it from the top, it's actually sort of intimidating how how big it is, how long it stretches out. So is is there an area or a region that you suggest people start out with? Yeah, and it's nice talking about Detroit Lake. I don't feel like I'm revealing a secret steelhead <laughs> hole or something. It, it's a big public, you know, reservoir. And so, sure, Piety Knoll, that island, uh, trolling on both sides of that are very effective for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also caught fish up by the dam as well. Mm-hmm. But you're right. The trout are distributed throughout the lake. Kokanee, as I mentioned, that's more about finding their depth and the location of their schools. 
I've, I've trolled for Kokanee. I'm like, there's no fish here. We're not catching anything. Move to the other side of the lake, and for whatever reason, their food source is there. Boom, you find them at depth and in terms of location. So you do want to find the fish. And for example, it's like we were out the other day fishing, mm-hmm. right? And one of the spots that we love wasn't really fishing well yep. because of the low water. Mm-hmm. And there was a kind of a current pushing some sediment and clouding up the water. So we made an adjustment and we fished in a different location. So of course, the lake will fish differently because of temperature or water flow. So once you find the fish, you should get into them pretty well. But there are no real secret spots. For sure. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the experience of going up to and maybe staying at Detroit Lake. A lot, You know, it's a traditional spot in Oregon for people to come up and camp maybe for a week and fish every day in the summer. For me personally, I, I enjoy camping there because it's just an easy recreation place for the family. I've got two small kids and it's super easy to go down there. You could fish, you can just go swimming real quick, you can get on a boat. For me, my favorite campgrounds are on the south side of the lake. So that's sort of the quieter side of the lake. The big popular state park is right along Highway 22. That's where most people go. But if you drive around to the south side, there's some quieter campgrounds. I like Hoover, Cove Creek, and my favorite is called South Shore. Just good camping spots, easy access to the lake. Um, any, Any places that you usually go, how do you usually do a Detroit trip as far as getting up there? My wife and I recently uh, made a nice trip to town. We love the town. Mm-hmm. I love walking around, having a great burger and a beer at the, I think it's the Cedar yep. Tavern there. And then we stay at the Lake Lodge and just was, was very clean and comfortable. And uh, again, enjoy the people. There's a kind of a folksy feel. And there are two, uh, two shops that really specialize in, in fishing tackle. Yeah. And they're always happy to talk to you. And they They'll sell you some bait. And so, uh, yeah, so for, you know, convenience, you can stay in town. And I love your ideas for camping. If you were camping, you could just walk down to the water from where you were and cast right off the shore. And I'm sure you'd have a good chance at a trout, too. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things I did was uh, uh, stand-up paddle boards are getting more popular. And my uh, kids love them because they're like floating docks almost. (laughs) And so I I took them out with a fishing line once you know, standing on top of the stand-up paddleboard and you could fish off of that. So you could just walk it down in the morning and, and do that and before all the big motorboats are out. Fantastic. Yeah, you mentioned something important. Uh, everyone has a right to the lake and everyone enjoys themselves differently. But as an angler, I, I don't like competing with the water skiers and the jet skiers and the speed boats. And so typically morning and evening are better times. And also different, you know, getting out in the spring or, or in the fall. We'll talk about winter fishing. But midsummer, in the middle of the afternoon, can be tough to really concentrate on your fishing. Yeah, in that, in that vein, and again, we'll get to, to winter uh, in a second just because that's kind of, it just a, it's a different place. But during those, you know, when the water's high, you know, spring into, into fall, what do you suggest as far as like times to, to get out there? Yeah, morning and evening are, it's a general rule with all fishing. Sure. Uh, you know, there's often a good bite in the morning. The water, you know, the surface of the water is cooler and fish like light changes. So, you know, morning and evening are always good. So I'd recommend morning. And the lake really fishes uh, throughout the year except uh, late January and February mm-hmm. when the water is very cold, when it's in the 30s. Fahrenheit, the, the trout become lethargic. They still feed, but but far less. That's still pretty amazing, though. I mean, we're talking about like nine to ten months out of the year where it's a pretty consistent fishery. I mean, is that accurate? 
Uh, yes. I mean, there are, I'd say maybe May is one of the hot times, and that's true of a lot of bodies of water in Oregon. They have a fishing derby uh, in right. Detroit, and uh, a couple of the winners this year were fish you know, exceeding two, three pounds, I believe. Mm-hmm. So there are some big ones in there. That's exciting. Um, but yeah, it does fish uh, all year round, except when the water really gets cold. But that's why trout are a good choice for a lake that that's, you know, it's a deep lake. Mm-hmm. And so they'll remain active where, you know, sunfish and warm water fish are not going to be active in the same way. All right. So let's jump into this because I've kind of been excited to talk about it because it's we've been out twice and fishing at Detroit in the winter is really an interesting experience. You know, in the summer, it's this beautiful shimmering lake you know, rolling mountains surrounding it. It's really a scenic reservoir. Mm-hmm. And then the water drops and it looks a little bit like it was hit by an atomic bomb that's just <laughs> like leveled the whole area. You got the tree stumps and the, in the bare mud that could, you know, swallow a small child if they stepped in the <laughs> wrong place. What did you think about the first time you came to Detroit in the winter? Did, did it surprise you or what did you think about fishing it just visually that first time? Yeah, the, the, the landscape is striking, Zach. Mm-hmm. You're right. And maybe it's good that we're reminded that this was a river mm-hmm. that was dammed um, and that, you know, uh, the land and the water were changed and, and communities were um, displaced. I mean, that, that's interesting just to kind of be aware of that. Mm-hmm. And you're right. When you see that graveyard of cut trees, right, massive stumps of old growth fir, it makes you think. And I think it's good to be, you know, cognizant of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, however... It is a reservoir, and I'm happy to use it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when you walk through that field of stumps into that dangerous mud and finally get to the water, you're looking at a low pool that's stuffed with fish. Yeah. And they're really voracious in November and December, and I've had tremendous luck uh, catching them. Yeah, you've talked uh, a couple about how winter is one of your favorite times to go out there fishing-wise. So not, you know, this year is kind of special and we'll get to that. But in general, what is it about winter that makes it a good time to fish up there? Right. Um, Certainly there are far fewer anglers Mm -hmm. and you don't have the distraction uh, of (laughs) or the disturbance of, you know, people who are water skiing and jet skiing and so on. So it's a quieter lake. And also the fish are happy. (laughs) The water temperature has dropped a bit. I mean, you know, trout really, really do well, like in the mid-50s up into the low 60s Fahrenheit. Uh, The kokanee are active. And so the conditions are excellent. They're feeding voraciously, getting ready for winter. And um, it's beautiful, as you mentioned. They're bald eagles, right? We We saw a lot of diving ducks the other day. These are birds that are wintering here, golden eyes and uh, buffle head. We see grebes often and loons. And so, yeah, it's it, you feel like you're back in nature a little bit, you know? Does, um, I mean, how would you compare just the quality of catching fish in winter compared to other times of the year? Is it, would, is it the best time to fish as far as catching fish or does it compete with that May time period? Yeah, it competes with that May and June time period in terms of catching fish. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to some old timers who really love eating rainbow trout and they, they claim, and I might agree that the flesh is a little better coming out of that colder water. Or I would agree that I've caught what we often call holdover trout, trout that have been stocked and may have survived a year or even more. And they tend to have more of a pink flesh. They've been eating aquatic insects. They've been behaving like real trout, yeah, right? Yeah. So that's kind of satisfying too, you know, rather than catching something that's just been stocked. 
And so that th- there's there is maybe an opportunity to catch a wilder fish. Um, and in fact, we have caught a couple wild cutthroats. It's rare though mm-hmm. um, in winter. But uh, really, I think because you have the lake to yourself, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah, and perhaps the the fish are better eating. Yeah, that's okay. debatable. So um, this year is a unique one because uh, because of some damage on the spillway gates on Detroit Dam. The river, the water level at Detroit has dropped to almost historically low levels. So consider these numbers. At the regular summertime level, Detroit Lake is around 1,563 feet above sea level. So that's just how they, how they measure it. So it's 1,563. Right now, when we were most recently on the lake, it was down at 1,430. So it's almost 130 feet lower compared to the summertime level. And it's really interesting. You can really see the concrete foundations and the ruins of the old town of Detroit that was flooded by the reservoir when it came up in the 1950s. There's the Sea of Stumps. There's also this interesting conundrum. So because it's so low right now, there's no boat access. The low water boat access ramp is closed. So you, But at the same time, the fishing is really, really good yes. because it's so low. And so... You know, if you can get a boat there, you might have some pretty good success. So we decided to, to get a boat out there. Can you talk to me about uh, kind of how you decided how to do it and, and how we made that happen? Well, we knew we wanted to get on that lake. Yeah. And so, sure, the, the best way is to trailer a boat and, and launch it at the winter ramp. But that ramp, as you say, is no longer accessible. So you can walk a boat down. And I have an aluminum John boat, a very common boat, weighs about 100 pounds. And Zach, you're quite strong and fit, but you know, it really, it wasn't too bad, was it? We walked yeah. it about about an eighth of a mile mm-hmm. um, from um, a parking area near what what would be the old boat ramp. Yep. Um, and put some light gear in it and walked it down. Now the mud is the only kind of negative factor. It is thick mud. It's thick, and then you kind of track it into your boat a bit. Now. It's fine, but it's just something to, to be aware of, you know, try to keep it off the reels and things like that. But that was the only downer. You know, once you just get it in the water and um, I was rowing mm-hmm. and you were trolling and, boy, did we get some fish, right? It, it was crazy. It was red hot. It was – It was. I'd, I've heard about this happening to people, but it was, a, you know, one line would have a fish and then the other line and you had to almost make a choice about which, which rod to grab first. It was, it was ridiculous. Yeah, you couldn't even take a bite out of a cookie. No. The, the rods were going off. So, again, making up for I, – I went fishing uh, for salmon several times <laughs> this year and didn't catch one. Uh, so I felt somewhat vindicated by this uh, intense action of a, you know, a cousin salmonid, uh, our friends, the trout – but uh, so, yes, if you can get in the water, I think you can catch fish. And it's kind of an adventurous experience, too, you know, in, as opposed to, you know, backing the boat down there. You know, in this case, you, you kind of got to do some problem solving because we went to one area and we're like, oh, that's that's too steep. So too let's, steep. Fi- let's find a different area right. to carry this boat in. And then you get to the edge and, you get, you know, you sink in up to your knee in mud. Yep. And you're like, okay, well, we, we got to get this out here. Let's figure it is problem solving. But then your problem solving is rewarded by this fantastic fishing. I agree. And I like that. And I like that about fishing. All kinds of fishing, all kinds of water requires some problem solving. Some situations are easier than others, but you're right. And I think if you had a kayak, even a float tube, a small raft, you could easily get it to the water. And again, you're going to deal with the mud. Mm -hmm. But other than that, you know, it's terrific. It's a terrific fishery. 
So, anything else about Detroit, either in the winter, in the spring, in the fall,、uh, that you would, you know, tell people who were interested in catching some fish out there? It's a very beginner-friendly lake. So, if people had been away from fishing for a couple of years, wanted to get back into it, you know, what would you tell them about going up to Detroit? You're right. It's a really beginner-friendly lake, and I would say if you have a boat, launch it. And start trolling,、mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have a very good chance of catching some nice trout.、Um, it, it the lake it really it kind of encourages a, a transgenerational fishing too. Zach, I've seen grandparents with small children. You know, I've seen people,、uh, disabled people.、Uh, you know, people of all walks of life enjoying fishing. And I must say, that's what those lakes are really designed for. A broad recreational opportunity for people, you know, all sorts of people, and people who have never fished before. I've met several people who have never actually gone fishing, and they went to Detroit and they caught a fish and they were thrilled. And also environmentally, these are stock fish; these are not threatened species. And you know, you, in good conscience, I think you can go and catch a fish and take it home and eat it. In fact, it's better than going to the supermarket, I believe, because you are actually engaged in the the process of acquiring your supper. So I can't think of really a better way to to get fishing. Perfect. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have left on the Explore Oregon podcast. Make sure and subscribe if you like what you heard at statesofjournal.com/explore. Or check us out on Apple Podcasts, or even Google Podcasts, or on SoundCloud. Make sure to check out some of the older episodes of the podcast, which you can find on the Apple Feed, among others, which include a deep dive into traveling to the Wallawa Mountains, the ancient redwood forests, and Oregon's immaculate collection of lighthouses, and how to explore them from the inside. All right, thanks for listening.